Right. Good morning, everyone. It's so, it's so good to be with you. It's so good to worship the Lord together and sing those songs of praise. And I trust that we'll be encouraged this morning as we come to worship. Uh, first and foremost, I just want to, on behalf of Boron myself, just thank you guys so much for your kindness and grace and your prayers and the many ways you guys have blessed us with the birth of Sione. Uh, it's been a few long nights uh, this past week, but uh, we're so thankful for God's grace and thankful to the church body at large for uh, your care and concern for us during this time. If you have your Bible, uh, please turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. We're going back and we're looking at the church at Thyatira. Uh, this morning. Um, before we read this particular passage, uh, we, we need to be reminded of who is speaking uh, in this passage. Uh, I asked Gary to read Psalm 2 because in Psalm 2 we, we see the exaltation of God's Son, the anointed uh, over against the nations, uh, the nations whom He will judge and cast down. And you must either submit to Him in reverence and fear or be destroyed. And it's that Jesus, that Son, who is speaking to us in this letter. This is the only letter where Jesus is described as the Son of God. And so we need to recognize that the exalted Son uh, of Psalm 2 is the Son who, who speaks here, not to the nations, but to us. And therefore, we would do well to listen uh, this morning to Him. Uh, so let's read together uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 18 to 29. This is God's word. Let's hear it. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and deceive the seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. To the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule with them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. At least so far in the reading of God's Word, may He reform our lives to its truth. Uh, let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, as we humble ourselves before your word, uh, we pray, dear Lord, that you would open it up to us and that you'd feed us, as it were. Uh, with an old hymn, uh, hymn of old, we, we pray this morning that you'd break your word, your bread of life, dear Lord, to me, as thou dost break the loaves beside the sea. Beyond the sacred page, I seek thee, Lord. My spirit pants for thee, O living word. Break thou the bread of life, O Lord, to me, that hid within my heart thy word may be. Mold thy each inward thought from self to set free, and let my steps be all controlled by thee. Open thy word of truth, that I may see thy message written clear and plain for me, then in sweet fellowship, walking with thee, thine image on my, thine image on my life engraved will be. O send thy spirit, Lord, now unto me, that he may touch my eyes and make me see. Show me the truth concealed within thy word, and in thy book revealed I see the Lord. Bless thou the truth, dear Lord, to me, to me, as thou didst bless the bread by Galilee. Then shall all bondage cease, all fetters fall, and I shall find my peace, my all in all. Amen. A.W. Tozer once famously wrote these words. He said, What comes into your minds when you think about God is the most important thing about us. Let me say that again. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. See, what we think about God is the most important thing about us because what we think about God inevitably affects how we worship God. If you have a high view of God, then you will have a high view of how you ought to worship Him and adore Him. But if you have a low view of God, then you will undoubtedly neglect Him and, and think little of Him. See, what we think of God matters. And dear friend, what is true of God in general matters, particularly also when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. What we think of Jesus matters. It will affect the way we respond to him and will affect the way we live before him. I'm convinced that one of the problems, one of the biggest problems we have is that we have often an incomplete and imbalanced view of who Jesus really is. We, we have an imbalance in the sense that we think that what we think about Jesus often falls short to who he actually is. And I'm not speaking here of the unbeliever. I know, and we know, that unbelievers often have a, have a faulty view of Jesus. We know, for example, that Muslims think that Jesus is just some prophet. We know that the Jehovah's Witnesses think that he's just some angel, some exalted being. We know even that the, the liberal thinks that Jesus is just a, a good moral person. We, we know that, but I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about us. I'm talking even about myself. I'm talking about those in the church. We often have an incomplete view of Christ. For example, we often think of Jesus as just this meek and lowly lamb 
Yet we forget that he is also the mighty lion of Judah. We often love the fact that Jesus is our Savior who gave himself for us, yet we forget at times that he's also the Lord who has authority over us. Look particularly this morning at this description we see of Jesus in, in verse 18. This description, as with the whole of chapter 1 in Revelation, is meant to give us a, a true picture of Christ. It says there, firstly, the words of the Son of God. See, Jesus isn't just some mere man. He is the eternally begotten Son of God. Fundamentally, He is the one who has eternally been with the Father and from the Father. He is the one who is infinite and immortal, indivisible, incomprehensible in His being. He is the one who possesses the very nature of God, as the Nicene Creed says, very God of very God. And notice next that this son is one who has eyes like a flame of fire. We might think of Jesus as one who, who looks with compassionate eyes upon the weak, and we praise God for that reality which we must also realize and remember that Jesus also has raging eyes that look with judgment and condemnation upon the wicked, that look with wrath and anger against sin. See, see that description doesn't just speak of Jesus penetrating inside. It doesn't just speak of Jesus' majesty and glory. It speaks also of him looking with, with judgment upon sin and wickedness. The Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire. And next, notice what it says, whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now again, we might think of Jesus as one who has pierced feet. Feet who, 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 were, who were pierced because he gave himself as a sacrifice for sinners. Yet we would do well to also remember that this is a Jesus who has burnished bronze feet. Feet with which he tramples down wickedness. His enemies, shattering them to pieces. Did you see the picture we are given here of Jesus? I would argue it's a picture quite different to, to the one that many Christians have of Jesus as this meek and lowly being, this meek and lowly nice guy. And we need to be reminded again that the Jesus who is speaking here is one who is mighty in power, Jesus is speaking here also, remember, to the church. This Jesus with raging eyes of fire is looking to the church. This Jesus with burnished bronze, of, of bronze feet is addressing his people. This is not a Jesus to be playing games with. This is not a Jesus to, to set aside for another. This is not a Jesus to, to overlook and disregard. This is not a Jesus to confess with your mouth, but deny with your life. No, this is a Jesus you need to revere. This is a Jesus you need to submit to. As Psalm 2 says, kiss the Son, bow to Him, submit to Him, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Now, I would suggest to you that this letter is written to a church that needs to be reminded of who Jesus is. The church in Thyatira is a church that, due to cultural and social and economic pressures, embraces sin and idolatry. 
And not only did they embrace Sunnah idolatry, they believed false teaching that essentially said this. They essentially said this. It said, hey, don't worry. Jesus is okay with sin and idolatry. Jesus knows that sometimes you have to give in to sin. Jesus understands that sometimes you have to entertain idolatry. Jesus is okay with it if sometimes we compromise our faith. In fact, these false teachers were saying that if you compromise, you, you will actually grow in grace. You will grow as a Christian. They will say something like this, oh, wait, wait, sin abounds, grace abounds. And so the more you sin, the more grace you get to enjoy. And see, in response to this, this false teaching and this compromised church, Jesus writes this letter revealing essentially that they do not know who he is because if they knew who he was, they would know that he is not okay with compromise. He is not okay with these people embracing sin and idolatry. And see, the point for us to realize this morning as we consider this, these letters in this series is that if we are to be healthy Christians, if we are to be a healthy church, we need to know who Jesus is, who he is in all of his totality. We need to know also what he expects of us as his people. Because ultimately, what we think of Jesus matters. Now, to understand all of this, uh, I, I want us to, to see a few things in this particular letter uh, from our passage. Uh, a few things that ought to challenge us uh, in our commitment to Christ. And a few things that ought to safeguard us from errors, errors that will ultimately make us unhealthy Christians in an unhealthy church. The first thing I want you to see and I want you to, to think about this morning is this, that Jesus examines the church. Jesus examines the church. We see in chapter 1, verse 13, and in chapter 2, verse 1, that Jesus is among the lampstands. He is walking among the churches. But the question needs to be asked, what is he doing while he's walking among the churches? What is he doing when he, he sees the church? Well, in one sense, we know that he is watching over the churches with protective care. But I would suggest also that he is examining the churches. I think we often mislook that, overlook that aspect of it. In each of these seven churches, Jesus says, I know you, I, I know something about you. In each of these churches, Jesus knows them because on the one hand, he is omniscient, he knows all things. But, but on the other hand, he is, he is examining the church. He is weighing her in the balance. This comes out in verse 23, where he says, I am he who searches mind and heart. And by the way, this is one of the connotations of Jesus' description, verse 18. With eyes of flaming fire, Jesus sees in the inner parts of our being. He peers into the inner, hidden, dark places of your heart. He, he sees past all the pretense. He sees past all the performing. Now, he, he sees you. He examines us. Jeremiah 20, verse 12, speaks of the Lord of hosts who, who tests the righteous, who, who sees the heart and the mind. Again, this is something I don't think we often think about much. We would do well to remember this morning that, that we live before the all-seeing eye of God. 
We live quorum Deo, that is, before the face of God. He sees, he knows. For the unbeliever, you need to know that God sees all you do. He sees all your hidden motives. You must not think that you can hide anything from this God. But even for the believer, guess what? God sees all you do. You must not think that because you're a Christian, because you've claimed the name of Christ, that somehow he overlooks you now. Somehow he, he's okay with, with those sinful uh, temptations that you so easily embrace. Isn't this something we see in all these letters? Jesus isn't content with sin in his church. He isn't content with unrighteousness in his people. That's why in all these letters he, he speaks out, he, he warns. See, we are dealing with a Jesus who, who sees and who knows us and who examines us. And a good question, I think, to ask ourselves is this. What's he looking for as he examines us? As he has looked upon you this week, as he's gazed in your heart, as he's tested all your actions, what do you think he's wanting to see? Now, may I suggest to you what Jesus wants to see, and this might surprise us, is he wants to see good works. He wants to see good works. Uh, look at the commendation that he gives in verse 19. These are things that are pleasing in the sight. This is things he, he sees in the church and he's pleased by it. He says, I know your works. And then he moves on to describe what these works are. He says, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. Now, what a beautiful description of a church. This is a church that has produced good works, the works of love for one another, the works of faith in the Lord, the works of service to the needy, the works of patient endurance in affliction. And what is more, this is a church marked by an ever-increasing growth in good works. Look where it says, I know that your latter works exceed the first. See, unlike Ephesus who, who abandoned their first love, who were told to return to their first works, this is a church whose first love flourished, and it flourished in the production of good works, pleasing to the Lord. See, this is what Jesus finds pleasing in his body. This is what he's looking for as he examines the church. Remember what, he, what Paul says in two, uh, two, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, where he tells us that, that we are his, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, here I believe we are confronted by an error that will cause us to be unhealthy Christians. And an unhealthy church, and that error is the error of antinomianism. Antinomianism simply means uh, against the law, antinomos, uh, against the law. Antinomianism, unfortunately, is, a, is an often misunderstood uh, error. It's not just about being against the law, it's also about being against good works. It's about de-emphasizing the role of works in a believer's life. See, what is good works after all but obedience to the law of God? See, in our effort to, to emphasize that we are not saved by our works, we often dismiss the essential role that good works play in our lives. 
Let's get this straight. We are not saved by good works. We are saved by faith in Christ alone. But when we are saved, there should be the fruit of good works. One Puritan put it this way, faith justifies a person, but his works justify his faith. That is, the good works are, are not the cause of our salvation, while the good works are the fruit of our, that salvation, proving that faith genuine. And the question we need to be asking ourselves, the question we need to be wrestling with is, is my profession of faith producing the fruit of good works? Is it producing a life that is pleasing to Christ as he examines me? Thomas Adams, another Puritan, he said this, the want or the lack of good works makes faith sick. Beloved, are we healthy Christians because our faith has fruit? Or are we sickly Christians because our faith is alone? There's no works, no fruit. And realize that Jesus will ultimately examine us according to our works. Look at verse 23. I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each according to your works. The Bunyan described it this way, John Bunyan said, as the day of doom, men shall be judged according to their fruits. It will not be said, then do you believe, but where, whether you are doers or talkers only. You see, we need to recognize when Christ comes and he, he weighs us in the balance, he, he's looking for good works. He's looking to see if our faith actually has fruit. I have to think about this a bit further. Uh, consider uh, carefully, listen carefully to Titus chapter 3, verse 4 to 8. There Paul says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Lord. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And then he says this, the saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. See, when Jesus examines us, what does he want to see? He wants to see good works. This is excellent in his eyes. Does he see a people devoted to good works when he looks at us? Does he see a people devoted to good works, not because we're trying to save ourselves in our own self-righteousness, but because we have been saved? We have tasted his goodness and grace, and in response to, to, to him, we want to serve him and give for him. You realize then as as Jesus examines us, he's looking for good works because good works please him. Look at verse 26, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I'll give him authority over the nations. Let us realize then that we are dealing with a Jesus whose eyes are continually upon us, who is examining us, who is holding us in the balance, weighing us in the balance who will hold each one of us accountable for all we do. And therefore, this is not a Jesus to be playing games with. 
This is the Son of God who has eyes like, a f- like flaming fire. He is not to be trifled with, but He is to be revered. He is to be obeyed. He is to be served. Because He saved us for this purpose. So that's the, the first thing I want us to consider this morning and, and really think about that. Jesus examines us. He, he examines the church. The second thing to think about this morning, and the second thing I want you to see, is that Jesus not only examines the church, but he executes judgment on the compromised. Jesus executes judgment on the compromised. In verse 20, Jesus turns from commendation to rebuke. Despite all their good works, the church of Thyatira is displeasing. He says, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. Now that word tolerate means to allow something to happen. And the idea here seems to be that in the church of Thyatira, there are those in the church who tolerated false teaching, and by allowing false teaching, they open up the way to ungodliness. See, the fundamental problem that Jesus has with this church is that it had compromised its faith. By compromising on the truth, it ended up compromising on its godliness. And see, both of those two things ought to go together. Right belief ought to produce right behavior. Truth ought to lead to godliness in our lives. However, if you, if you compromise on the truth, if you compromise on right belief, then you unfortunately open the way up potentially to, to wrong behavior, to, to, to ungodliness. Now, to understand all of this, uh, we need to understand the false teaching of Jezebel. But in order to understand the false teaching of Jezebel, we need to understand something of the, the context of Thyatira. Uh, one of the few things we know about Thyatira, it wasn't a, a big city, and, and so our knowledge of it is quite limited. But one of the, the few things we do know about Thyatira is that this church was dominated, or this city was dominated by trade guilds or trade unions. See, in Thyatira, each industry had a guild to which you had to belong. Whether you were a potter or a metal worker, a baker, a clothing manufacturer, you had to belong to your guild if you were to be successful. And the reason is simple. The guilds were the center of commerce and, and civic life in Thyatira. In fact, to not belong to your guild would be to commit economic and social suicide. Now, here, here's where the problem comes in for the Christians in Thyatira. These guilds were often tied to pagan gods. They were, they were often embracing pagan worship and cultivating uh, the worship of these false gods. So if you belonged to a guild, you were expected to, to take part in these pagan rituals, these, these festivals, which included eating uh, food offered to the idols and, and sometimes even partaking in sexual immorality. Now, as you can imagine, this puts the Christian in a difficult position. If you're a Christian tradesman or tradeswoman, you either partake in these pagan festivals that lead to sin, or, or you face the very real risk of, of poverty and social exclusion. So, you see, these are really the two options before you if you live back then. Either you stay committed to Christ regardless of the cost, or you compromise your faith for the sake of your economic and social comforts. And see, this is the problem that the Christians in Thyatira were facing. 
And see, it's in light of this particular problem that Jezebel comes in. Instead of teaching God's people to, to stay committed to Christ, Jezebel, this, this false prophetess, comes in and teaches that it's okay to compromise. She thought it's okay to partake in these pagan rituals. It's okay to eat food offered to idols. It's okay to commit sexual immorality. And instead of exhorting God's people to, to steer away from sin, she was seducing God's people to, to embrace their sin. We see this in verse 20, teaching and seducing my servants to, to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, by the way, that's why she's called Jezebel. You might remember Jezebel in the Old Testament, the, the pagan wife of King Ahab who led the nation into sin and idolatry. And see, what that Jezebel did to Israel back then, this Jezebel was doing to the church in Thyatira. She seduced God's people to commit adultery, to, to commit sexual immorality and spiritual idolatry. In fact, she seemed to have taught that by embracing the sin, by compromising your faith, you actually become a better Christian. Now, William Hendrickson gives a, a good description of, of this, this Jezebel's teaching. He says, she apparently argued thus, in order to conquer Satan, you must know Satan. You will never be able to conquer sin unless you have become thoroughly acquainted with sin by experiencing it. In brief, Hendrickson says, a Christian should learn to know the deep things of Satan. By all means, attend the guilt feast. Commit fornication as a Christian because by doing so, guess what? You become a better Christian. And so we need to see then that, that many of these Christians in Thyatira are what we might call compromised Christians. They believed this lie and they compromised their faith. They embraced sinful sinful idolatry and sexual immorality. They wanted to hold on to Christ with the one hand and hold on to the, the worldly comforts with the other. And how does Jesus respond to, to such Christians? Look at verse 23 and 24, 22 and 23. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into a great tribulation. Unless they repent of her works, I will strike her children dead. See, Jesus will respond by pouring his wrath upon those who compromise the faith. He will pour out judgment upon those who, who forsake him for the sake of this world and its pleasures. Dear friend, dear believer, what a solemn warning this is to us. Jesus is not okay with compromise. Jesus is not satisfied with worldly followers. Jesus does not look with favor upon those who cling on to this world. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. And we would add to that you cannot serve Christ and the things and the pleasures of this world. Now, there's a story told of Tertullian, the early church father, who was rebuking a believer for this very thing, for, for participating in idolatrous worship. And this man defended himself. What must I do, he said to Tertullian. How must I make a living? And Tertullian answered, must you? And see, his point was simply this. Our greatest calling in life is not prosperity and comfort in this life. Our greatest calling is devotion to Christ. 
our greatest calling is to serve Him, to honor Him. Now, this might seem a little bit harsh. This might seem a bit, bit strained. This is calling for a bit too much radical devotion. Well, let me guarantee you, it's not as harsh as what Jesus says in Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. See, this is a Jesus who does not play games. This is a Jesus who wants all of who we are. Now, now let's be honest. Uh, we should not look too harshly upon these Christians in Thyatira because it's so easy for us to, to likewise compromise the faith. Isn't it easy for us in light of our social and cultural and economic pressures to, to compromise our faith? To, to, to become divided in our devotion, to, to allow sin and tolerate it for a while. Perhaps you're a businessman or, or businesswoman, and, and because you don't want to lose out on climbing that corporate ladder, you, you agree to partake in sinful and deceitful business practices. You lie, you cheat, you steal. Perhaps you're a young, young man, and because you, don't, you, you, because you want to be popular and you want to be accepted, you, you watch and listen to ungodly filth in entertainment. You entertain and celebrate these things that celebrate sin. Perhaps you're a young woman, and, and because you don't want to be disregarded, you, you, you want to be accepted by your peers, you perhaps even want to be accepted by your boyfriend or the guy you have your eye on, and, and so you give in to, to sexual immorality. You, you dress in a particular way to gain acceptance. Dear friend, be warned. Dear Christian, Jesus executes judgment on the compromise. In James 4, verse 4, we are told, adulterous People, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Beloved, Christ calls for devotion despite the cost. Now, let me also just say, to kind of give some hope, if you have compromised your faith, as I think we all have, if you have fallen into the sin of compromise, do not lose heart because there's still hope for you. We see in our passage that Jezebel even had an opportunity to repent and, and those who followed her still have an opportunity to repent. And dear friend, for you sitting here today, perhaps you've fallen into sin, perhaps you've allowed your heart to be, be tainted by this world, know that there still is an opportunity to repent. If you turn to Christ again with faith, if you, if you count the cost of following him, if you die to self and sin and the world, then he will turn to you with favor. He, he will come to you and, and, and show you grace and kindness. Yes, he's the Lord of the universe, but he's still the Savior of sinners. And, and so if, you, if you've fallen into the sin, beloved, turn to Christ still. Repent and, and trust in him, and you will find favor and grace and mercy. So, so far, we've considered two things about Christ, that he examines the church and they ex executes judgment on the compromised. The third and final thing I want us to consider this morning is this, that Jesus also exalts the committed. Jesus exalts the committed. Look at verse 
24 to 29. Jesus concludes this letter and, and he, he gives us great, beautiful promise. He says, but to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call this deep things of Satan, do you, I say, I do not lay any other burden on you. Now, what is he talking about here? What's this burden he's speaking of? What is the only burden that Christ puts upon us? Well, the answer, I suggest, is, is faithful perseverance, faithful commitment to him. Look at how he carries on. Only hold fast what you have until I come. See, Jesus here is speaking to those who have repented of their compromise, who have turned from their sin, and who stay committed to him in faith. And see, Jesus here promises to exalt those who remain faithful to him, who are committed to him, who count the cost of following him. See, this promise of exaltation, as someone has said, Jesus promises two eschatological gifts, uh, two gifts to look forward to as we serve him. And both are really two sides of the same coin. The first uh, way that he exalts us and the first gift is this. Those who are committed to Christ will reign with Christ. Those who are committed to Christ will reign with Christ. Look at verse 26 and 7. And to the one who conquers, who, who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And notice now Jesus alludes to Psalm 2. He quotes it in verse 9. He quotes Psalm 2, verse 9. He says, He will rule with them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as myself have received authority from my Father. Now, now that's a very interesting move there. By, by referring to Psalm 2, Jesus is saying that those who are committed to Him will have a share in His messianic kingdom. Those who are committed to him will share in his authority as he is exalted as the Son of God over all the nations. Uh, think of how Jesus was, was committed to his Father. He entered into our humanity. He served the Father. He, he did all that the Father wished. He, he lived a life of perfect obedience. So much so that he gave himself upon the cross of Calvary, dying for us, dying in our stead. And on the third day, the Father justifies the Son. The Father exalts the Son, raising Him to, to life, ascending Him to the right hand of power where He reigns. See, as a result of His obedience, Jesus was raised and exalted to a place of authority. And guess what? The point being here is if we persevere, if we hold fast, if we remain faithful to Christ, He promises you that He too will exalt us. He too will raise us to a place of authority with Him in His presence, in His kingdom. See, those who are committed to Christ will reign with Christ. But the second uh, aspect of His promise here, the way He exalts the committed, is this. Those who are committed to Christ will be glorified with Christ. Look at what He says in verse 28. And I will give Him the morning star. Now, what does that mean? Uh, well, if you read Revelation 22, 16, Jesus calls himself the bright morning star, which has a number of connotations if you read different commentators. It speaks of his arrival as the promised messianic king. It speaks, too, of him being the light to the nations that dwell in darkness. It speaks to his royal reign in, the, in his heavenly kingdom. It also speaks of his victorious resurrection from the grave. 
But see, regardless of all of these different connotations, this description fundamentally speaks of believers having Christ, of receiving Christ and being glorified with Christ. The idea seems to be this, those who are committed to Christ will receive the the bright morning star, they will be exalted to Him and be glorified with Him. Beloved, if you didn't know this, let me tell you, heaven is all about Christ. And this is what He's promising you. He's promising eternal glory with Him. I've often gone back to this quote by Spurgeon. It's probably one of my favorite Spurgeon quotes. Spurgeon said this about heaven. Oh, to think of heaven without Christ. It is the same thing as thinking of hell. Heaven without Christ, it is day without the sun, existence without life, feasting without food, seeing without life. It involves a contradiction in terms. Heaven without Christ Absurd. It's the sea without water, earth without its field, heaven without its stars. There cannot be heaven without Christ. He's the sum total of bliss, the fountain from which heaven flows, the element which heaven is composed of. Christ is heaven, and heaven is Christ. And beloved, that's what Christ is promising you. Eternity with Him, the bright morning star where we will shine in the radiance of His glory and enjoy His presence. And consider all of this in the context of Thyatira. The Christians in Thyatira were tempted to compromise because their commitment to Christ could cost them everything, a place of prestige, a place of prominence in society. And Jesus is saying here, Be committed to me. Hold fast to me and you'll be exalted to a place of glory far beyond anything your little guild can offer. What a comfort. Your faith in Christ might lead you to being rejected and despised and overlooked in this world, but Jesus promises that those who remain faithful will be exalted with him in glory. What a comfort that is to us. What a comfort that ought to be to us as we persevere through the difficulties of this life. As we undertake all the challenges and the burdens of being Christians and the church in this fallen world. Now, as I conclude, the question before all of us this morning is simply this. When you think of Jesus, what comes to mind? Is he just some guy that we talk about on Sundays? Is it just this, this savior that sometimes we align when things get a bit tough? Or is he that and more? Is he your savior and your Lord? Is he the one you turn to for hope and strength and, and peace? Is he your all in all? And the question following on from that, when you think of Jesus, what effect does it have? How are you living for him? Are you producing the fruit of faith in him? Are you living a life seeking him, his glory, and producing fruit for his praise? See, may we be a people who are constantly reminded that that he is examining our hearts. He will judge the wicked, but he also will exalt his people. And so let us give ourselves to him. Let us consecrate our lives yet again to his service for his glory. 
And then we close by this prayer of Spurgeon. When Spurgeon was converted a month later, he wrote this prayer. Let me close with this. O great and unsearchable God, who knowest my heart and triest all my ways, with humble dependence upon the support of thy Holy Spirit, I healed up myself to thee. As thy own reasonable sacrifice, I return to thee thy own. I would be forever unreservedly, perpetually thine. Whilst I am on earth, I would serve thee. And may I enjoy thee and praise thee forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider this example of fire tire before us, as we are confronted again with the ever-present sin of compromising our faith to this world and the things of this world, we pray that we would take serious who you are in your nature, in your being, that you are a God who is to be feared. Lord, we pray that you would respond appropriately even this morning, that we would respond with faith and repentance where it's necessary, but also that we would respond with greater zeal, with a desire to live in such a way that pleases you, producing good works, knowing that this is what you desire, this is what you find excellent, and that we would do so out of a joy and a delight to please you. Help us, dear Lord, in this. Help us to be a healthy people, a healthy church that is pleasing in your sight, a church that walks uprightly before you. Oh, dear Lord, we need your grace in this. And so we pray by your Holy Spirit, consecrate us again to your service. In Christ's name, amen.